0: Welcome to iCommunicate on full service radio 830 WCRN. to join the conversation call 508-871-7000 now here's your host Mark Altman okay welcome to iCommunicate glad to be with you here today and you know
1: We always pick topics that directly relate to what I would call emotionally intelligent communication. And today our topic is around the pressure of making the right decisions and the fear of making the wrong ones. And I've got a fun fact to start the show today. You ready? So the fear of making the wrong decisions is called decidophobia. I think a lot of people have decidophobia and they may not realize they have decidophobia. And, you know, I can almost compare it to, and this is a pet peeve of mine. I almost compare it to when we are all labeled to be extroverted or introverted. And there's a new term that many of you may not be aware of. It's called being an ambivert and an ambivert means you have some extroverted tendencies and some introverted tendencies, which is the majority of human beings. But, but it's just easier to label everybody, right, just to give people a label. Well, decidophobia, you know, do, do, do you have the fear of making the wrong decisions? I think every human being has some element of decidophobia. And I was thinking about, before the show today, I was thinking, like, what are some of the decisions we have to make personally and what are the decisions we have to make professionally? And I was kind of laughing to myself because I'm someone that uh, at times – really over overthinks what I'm going to have to eat, believe it or not. And part of it is because my stress goes to my stomach. So sometimes I get a stomach ache and depending on how stressed I am, I can eat certain things and not eat certain things. So, you know, enough of that. But the point is there's, there's the mundane daily decisions like what time do I want to go to bed? What time do I want to eat? What do I want to do with my free time? How much time do I want to spend with my kids, etc., etc., etc. et cetera. Et cetera, et cetera. But there are major decisions that we make on a personal level over the course of our lives, as you all know. And I'm going to cite four decisions, right, that to quickly touch upon the beginning of the show. Career decisions, business decisions, where you live decisions, and relationship decisions. Okay? And when I think of, when I reflect on my career, You know, I was in a situation where I had to make a decision on my career at a very young age about what I had to do as opposed to what I wanted to do. That's okay. I made some decisions based on what I had to do. It served me well. Then I made some decisions because I had an entrepreneurial spirit. So I started a business. Um, Still wasn't really what I wanted to be doing because it was primarily um, a sales job. But then when I became CEO of the company and had built a pretty good-sized team, um, I was in leadership. So I went from, you know, entrepreneurial aspirations to sales to leadership. And now I started Mindset Go six years ago and love what I'm doing. So when I look back at my career decisions, and this is what's tricky about decisions. I didn't love everything I was doing up until now up until I started Mindset Go, but a lot of the decisions I made paved the way for me to be where I am now and to be happy about Mindset Go. And a lot of us, when we reflect back on previous decisions, become very black and white about it. It was a good decision or it was a bad decision. And the middle category to me when it comes to decision making is growth mindset. And I'm gonna give you a perfect example. I have a client of mine who about six months ago hired you know an admin support person, and this person uh, did some good things for this client. They weren't perfect, but they did some good things. Great customer service, customers loved them. They had some flaws, but overall they were producing and helping the client. Well, three months into the tenure of this employee, they left. And they left because they had some personal issues, stuff going on that they had to attend with. So they left. So he looks at the decision as they lasted three months. What a bad hiring. And I look at the decision and I say, well, wait a minute. What did you see in the interview? What did you see in the due diligence process of hiring someone that told you they were going to be a good hire? And one of the things we're going to talk about on the show today is gut instinct. Right? So... Did your instincts serve you? Did the things that you detected play out? Did she do the things well that you thought she would do well? And the answer was yes. He couldn't have foreseen that she had personal issues. He couldn't have foreseen the reason why the job didn't work out. But if the takeaway is that's a bad decision, the employee lasted only three months, the problem with that is when you become a black-and-white result of decisions— when you become black and white about the results and consequences of decisions, you're going to get lonely and you're going to get disappointed more often than not because human nature is to default to the negative and point out the flaws more than recognize the positives. I mean, I look at decisions around where you live and purchases you make. You know, I bought my first house in Marlborough, Massachusetts. I lived there for four years It was perfect for what I needed. Then I bought a house in Hudson, Mass. Lived there for 11 years. It was wonderful. It was everything I had hoped it would be. And now I live in a condo. And so how many people can go through their lives feeling ecstatic about their choices of houses they bought, where they lived? I feel pretty fortunate that I've made some pretty good decisions so far. Haven't had any major problems. And then you get to relationship decisions. I'm divorced twice. So I apparently suck at marriage. But the fact of the matter is, is that this is what I mean about being black and white about decisions and consequences. Those experiences where I failed and where I had flaws served me to be in a very healthy, loving relationship today. If I had not had those experiences, the likelihood that I could have reflected and seen the error of my ways was maybe not going to happen
2: a little bit of a learning curve and a trial and error process with that kind of stuff.
1: So much, Jasmine. And, and what's tricky about this is, that's what I mean about growth mindset. If you go into decisions where it's either great or it's awful, you're going to be destined to be disappointed. Because even your great decisions are going to have flaws and holes at times. And as we get into this show today... If you harp on the wrong decisions instead of recognizing the right ones, it's a problem. So if I look at my relationship decisions and say, boy, I'm not a good decision maker, well, I may not have always made good decisions in one aspect of my life, but that doesn't make me a bad decision maker. It makes me a bad decision maker temporarily until I figure out the better way to do it. Now, one of the things when it comes to people having a fear of making the right decision, decidophobia, is the feelings of unpredictability and the loss of control. Once you make that decision, you can't predict the future. So that's a huge problem when people make decisions. They can't predict the future, and so they're worried and overanalyze the decision. And the loss of control is because once you make that decision, you've relinquished control, which is actually... Not technically true. People perceive it as a loss of control. But when you're making a hiring decision, for an example, if this is a person that's going to work directly for you and it's going to impact the success of the company, you very much have an impact and control over that person's success. Not total or sole control, but you have some control. And this is the thing about gut instinct. What bothers me when people say they can't trust their instincts or I don't trust my gut is the rationale behind the statement. If you are listening to this show today and you're thinking about an example right now where you trusted your gut and it blew up in your face, what's the message? Is the message that I should never trust my gut again? Or is the message that my decision making process, my due diligence around making the decision maybe needs to be reevaluated. So it's not so much your gut, it's that the due diligence and choices you made leading up to making that decision were a little flawed. I'll give you a perfect example. Let's say, and I'm going to give a personal example because it's a good one. Let's say that you are a great judge of people, you have great insight about picking the right people in your life. And not only do you feel it, but the people around you tell you all the time, you're such a great judge of character. Like you really read people well. And then you get in a relationship and the person you're with cheats on you. Infidelity. So what's the takeaway there? All this time in your life, all these people have told you you're a great judge of character and now you picked a partner that modeled infidelity And chose so now you're not a good judge of character. So now for the rest of your life, you're gonna say, I can't trust people and partners that they're gonna be, you know, not be faithful. So when we come back from this break, I'm gonna talk about why that reasoning is flawed and how it relates to decision making in corporate America. For I Communicate, this is Mark Altman. We'll be right back.
0: Communicate continues on full service radio 830 WCRN. Once again, here's your host, Mark Altman. Okay, welcome back to I Communicate. At the end of the first segment, I was talking about trusting your gut and gut
1: instinct. And the example I gave is a person who has the self awareness and strong sense of self to think that they read people well, they have good instincts. And here's the thing about whether to trust people, that dangerous word of trust. And not only do you feel it as a person, but the people around you feel it. And then all of a sudden, your partner cheats on you. And the takeaway is, I can no longer trust my gut. I can no longer trust people. And now you're going to second guess yourself every time you choose a life partner moving forward. Doesn't make a lot of sense when I put it that way. How about a CEO who makes a critical hiring decision for a company is about to hire a COO or a CFO, and the last time they hired somebody like that, it was a disaster. So now it's like, oh God, I don't wanna go down that road again. But you know what? I said in the last segment, I talked about how we harp on bad decisions instead of the good ones. So for the CEO who had a role or took part And the previous executive that blew up in their face, what about all the other hires that that CEO has engineered or been a part of over the course of their career that have gone great, that have made a big impact to the company? We don't think about that. We forget those because it's just too easy because of recency bias and because it's easy to default to the negative that we're just going to think of the last bad experience and perseverate on that. Now, what I think about when people make decisions and the decisions don't work out, there's two fundamental questions that we need to ask ourselves when things don't work out. And this is a debrief or an autopsy process. And here's the deal. You're going to listen to what I'm about to say and you're going to say, yeah, that's a good point, Mark. I agree. Those are really good suggestions. But that's not what I'm looking for you to say. What I'm looking for you to say is, we need to start doing that. Because these questions should be a part of a growth mindset and learning and making better decisions. So instead of harping on the bad ones, learn from the bad ones. So here are the two questions. What did I miss? And here's the big one. What did I ignore? Because... I talk all the time when communication with people. There's a difference between reading body language and noticing body language. You may know how to read it, but do you actually stop and notice it? There's a difference between hearing what someone's saying and listening to what someone's saying. So when I talk about what did you miss and what did you ignore, you know, you have to pay attention to what's in front of you. I have a close friend who was redoing his kitchen. He just bought the nicest marble, and it was hardest to find. He ended up going with a contractor who was very shady. The guy didn't, wasn't willing to sign a contract. He made him pay the money up front, and there were other signs that right from the get-go that were really bad here. So I said to this person, I said, and there, he ended up having some problems. So I said, why would you choose to go with someone when you had that many red flags? And you know what the answer was, Jasmine? It wasn't that he didn't see the red flags. He saw them. But he became emotionally attached to the marble. And because it was so hard to find, he was willing to ignore the red flags and overlook all those things. And so I just think there's a huge difference between what did, they're both important, but what did you miss that you would need to know for next time and what did you ignore that you should have recognized?
2: Well, and that's kind of a huge point because I feel like people don't always look back at themselves and go, you know, I could have handled that better in this way or, you know, if I would have said that differently, it might have changed the situation entirely. And a lot of times we bring our past anxiety and our past issues into it, just like you were saying how you get all worked up about the past hire rather than the hire that you're doing right now, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. And that's a great point. And, you know, you're talking, Jasmine, about uh, accountability and self-awareness. And sometimes if I think people were to do the debrief autopsy process, asking those questions, what did I miss, what did I ignore, can be painful, because it, it makes you have to reflect on something you could have prevented.
2: Well, and it makes you stir up the trauma a little bit it of does. like, why was I triggered by this in the first place, you know?
1: Yes. And so the emotions, so let's talk about the emotions. So sometimes, and I'm going to talk about the due diligence process to making good decisions in a moment, but when you talk about the emotions and how emotions often guide our decisions, You know, I'll tell you something everybody can relate to, buying a car. You know, whenever I help people buy a car, I always tell them, don't play your hand. Like, I don't care how much you love it. I don't want you to say anything, right? So if you're emotionally tied into having to have that car, having to have that marble, having to have that house, then your decision-making process is probably going to get skewed because you're now emotionally attached to making that decision And you're not going to be able to see certain things because your emotions are going to blind you and deafen you for that matter. So the emotions are a big part of this. And being able during a decision-making process to separate out the emotional aspect of decisions is an enormous aspect of good decision-making. But it's very hard to do. So let's look at Let's transition a little bit to corporate decisions that are incredibly difficult for executives. So I talked about personal decisions around business and career and life relationships and uh, all things that really have a dramatic impact on your personal life. Well, I'm going to just rattle off five quick ones that are just devastatingly difficult corporate decisions. Hiring or firing someone, picking a technology solution, firing a client, expansion of your business, and pivoting direction and strategy, which by the way, why is that one so hard? Because it's change. And now you have to get everybody to buy into the new strategy and direction. So those are five enormously difficult kinds of decisions to make. And if you are a CEO and you're listening to this show right now, you would ask yourself in those five categories, if I was to generally evaluate my decisions in those five categories, how would I score myself? Overall, not in the individual buckets, overall, hiring, firing someone, picking a technology solution, firing a client, that's a tough decision, expansion, and pivoting direction and strategy. So what we're going to focus on for the rest of the show today is the aspect of hiring and firing someone, picking the right candidate, right? And this applies to your personal life, picking a relationship partner. I mean, there's a lot of correlations here. So it's not just a professional thing. There are correlations. So I'm thinking of the due diligence piece. And I talked about emotions a moment ago being a barrier to good decisions, you know what else is a barrier? Time. Because a lot of people realize, a lot of executives realize that due diligence is important and there are steps to take to vet candidates out. But a lot of them don't have the time and don't have the follow through. So even though they know it's important, they let their fear of busyness and overwhelm get in the way of making the decision. So even if you have a due diligence process, if your emotions taint that process or your time issues taint that process, you're already behind the eight ball. Now, I'm working with an organization right now who has different components to their due diligence process. One is, and oh my God, if we could tie this into personal lives, which you technically could. It would be so great for relationships. It's something called predictive index, right? So predictive index has you answer two fundamental questions. And when you answer those two questions, the software, the uh, algorithm, comes back and tells you your predictive behaviors and how you would mesh with your boss, among other things. And I have to tell you, First time I did this, I was really skeptical. I'm like, I don't know. I'm not buying in all these. You know, it's like these matchmaking dating sites. Like they're just going to use these algorithms. Well, let me tell you, they did a predictive index on me and it was spot on. I was like, that's crazy. But think about this. Think about if you were choosing a life partner, thinking about getting married to someone or getting engaged with someone and you could give them a predictive index and see what it would be likely that your relationship would work out with a reliable algorithm, that'd be crazy. Who wouldn't sign up for that? Right? Although maybe some no people- more
2: dating sites needed.
1: Yeah, right? So, Or maybe some people wouldn't sign up for it because they wouldn't want to know. But, but when we come back for our next segment, this is what I'm leading into. I'm going to go through the rest of the due diligence. But as, as we go through this, think of the different data points. Think of the pieces of information that this helps us in the decision-making process. So predictive index PI gives you predictions in behavior and predictions in behavioral relationships. So when we come back we'll continue that discussion for I communicate I'm Mark Altman.
0: now i communicate continues on full service radio 830 wcrn once again here's your host mark altman okay welcome back to i communicate
1: and uh, a funny footnote about decisions and that is that i really want to uh, condemn espn for their decision to hire alex rodriguez as an announcer on Sunday Night Baseball, as the Red Sox swept the Yankees, and to listen to him give analysis on a game is just nothing short of painful. I mean, the sad thing is he does have some knowledge. He does have some insight. But just listening to his pompous, arrogant tone and condescending tone like he knows more than everything else in the, everybody else in the world about everything – is just unbearable. So not a good decision by ESPN. I just want my uh, opinion on the record. Okay, so getting back to where we're at, we were talking about the predictive index. And so one of the themes you're going to see about when you do due diligence is the data points. So when you read a report from a predictive index, you're going to see things And what are you going to do? You're going to look at some things and go, that would be great. That would work out really well with our leadership team, with our CEO, with our personnel here at the company. And then you're going to read some things and go, I don't love that though. So the predictive index yields you data, some good, some bad. Ideally, you're hoping that it's a lot more good than bad. Then there's another thing, a company I'm working with right now that does what they call culture of excellence questions or core value questions. It's tremendous. This company has uh, a large selection of core values, and they ask a candidate, an executive candidate, to identify uh, three core values that most resonate with them and also three core value areas where they're still working and developing. But not only do they just identify them, they have to give some explanation. So when you pick a core value, and let's say you say integrity, is the core value you pick. You also have to explain how you've demonstrated or modeled integrity in the past and why it's important to you. So this is a very telling exercise. I find it to be incredibly useful. And you learn insight. You learn insight in how people express themselves, how they tell stories, the examples they pick um, to support their, the words they're choosing about core values, the areas of development. Are there any patterns across. So now you have the predictive index and you have a culture of excellence. You have two tools that are supporting one another and giving you multiple data points. And then, and a lot of companies do different predictive tools, Myers-Briggs and DISC and things like that. But then you have the final piece, which is feedback from multiple people within the organization. You have the HR person who's doing the initial interview. You have the CEO. You have The other members of the senior leadership team, you might have an outside consultant. There's just so many people now throwing feedback at you. And this is where decision-making gets so tough. It's when you have so many data points from so many people and so many resources, and now you're at the stage where i got to make a decision, and you've got all this info in front of you. It's like, man, there's a lot of good here. There's a lot of bad here. And so at a high level, there's a simple way around this. And that's before you collect all these data points, you identify the five most important things related to this job. In an experience I just had, you have to be specific and tangible. You can't say the person I'm looking for as an executive has to be a good communicator because there's so many aspects to communication. So when you say a good communicator, meaning... Communicating with their team they're going to manage? Do you mean communicating with the, their peers on the senior leadership team? Do you mean communicating effectively with the CEO? And then, not only are those three buckets in case, there are so many aspects of communication written communication, sus- being succinct when you communicate, negotiating, conflict, giving and receiving feedback. I mean, the list goes on and on. So you can't just say communication. What aspects of communication? are going to be critical to the success of this job. Another bucket, of course, is are they an effective leader? Well, what the heck does that mean? There's 40 or 50 core competencies that go with leadership. What are the leadership behaviors they need to model? What are the most important leadership behaviors? And I tell you what should be at the top of anybody's list, the the ability to motivate, influence, and develop the people around them. It's got to start with that at the top of the list. So, you know, if you don't set up the data points before the process, this is when emotions come into play. This is when you may tend to give more weight to something you observed in the interview, where maybe you shouldn't be giving more weight to that. You know, I have a colleague uh, that who specializes in recruiting, and she taught me years ago one of the mistakes I used to make in recruiting is I would look at a job description and requirements. And I would ask questions about all of them, but I hadn't really prioritized which ones were the most important. Because if I evaluate a candidate and I don't really have that vetted out in the first place, again, too many data points, unclear process. So look, there are, when you make a decision and you're evaluating the data points, you have to have a clear template of what are the most important criteria. You can have secondary criteria, but what are the most important criteria? And the answer is not every single bullet on the job description. That's not the answer. They're not all equal. They're not all weighted the same. There has to be more of an emphasis on a process of what really matters. Remember I said in the last segment, I said there's so much of this that correlates to life relationships. Well, if you're single, and you're choosing who you want to be with, you could have your little imaginary or real list of things you're looking for in a relationship partner, but they're not all the same. So, but I can tell you, if you've struggled in relationships in the past, and you beat yourself up, when you start to learn more about other people, your tendency may be to focus more on what they aren't bringing to the table than what they are bringing to the table in a relationship, because that's human nature. So, like I said before, you make the decision. You want to trust your gut. You get to trust your gut if you have a process. You don't just pull stuff out of thin air, right? If you're trusting your gut, there's a reason you're trusting your gut. You're reading something. You have instincts around something. That's fine. Use your instincts. Instincts are really valuable. And also know that there is a process that needs to take place. And that process involves identifying your template for success. How will I know I've made the right decision? You have to know that up front. What is my due diligence process like? Is it worked in the past? Do I feel good about it? Or do I need to revisit it and see if I'm missing something or I have a blind spot? Why did my last decision work out? And why didn't it work out? And do I need to adjust the process differently next time? So decision-making is really complex. And I, I, I process a lot about how people become very hard on themselves. And people glob on to the mistakes and glob on to the past decisions. And, you know, there's a way around that. And it's, it's about mindfulness. It's about self-awareness. It's about not wasting time beating yourself up for the decisions that didn't go well and using that same time to beat yourself up to self-reflect and understand what you need to do differently. And I've said this before on the show. Think of how irrational it sounds to say to someone, you know what, you need to put aside an hour or two to make sure your process is accurate, to reflect in your debrief or autopsy what went well or didn't last time. Sounds kind of irrational. We're all so busy, we've got so much going on over the course of the day that you want me to plot out 90 minutes or two hours of time just to sit and think, to self-reflect? I don't have time for that. That doesn't make a lot of sense. And obviously I'm being sarcastic. But the point is, when are we going to start making time to think? to strategize, to assess and evaluate. The primary curriculum at Mindset Go around leadership and motivation and habit change is a communication called motivational interviewing. Whenever you are about to have a conversation, to give feedback, to motivate or influence habits and behaviors, I have a process I teach called pre-brief This is a process of preparing for the conversation. This process, if done correctly, probably takes about 10 to 15 minutes. Not a huge chunk of time. But how many leaders prepare for conversations? How many husbands and wives and mothers and fathers prepare for conversations? So when we come back, we're going to continue talking about how to build that self confidence around decision making and also how do you really know if you've made the right decision how do you get that closure to say yeah i've made the right decision so for i communicate this is mark altman we'll be back for our final segment right after this
0: Communicate continues on full service radio, 830 WCRN. Once again, here's your host, Mark Altman. Okay, welcome back to iCommunicate. We're talking about making decisions. We're talking about the
1: fear of making the wrong decision, decidophobia. We're talking about the confidence to make the right decision. And we've talked about what could go wrong. And we want to talk we want to finish our final segment today, talk about a couple of things. First is, how do you know that you're making the right decision? And there's this thing called analysis by paralysis, right? And so this is when we overanalyze and we, we are second guessing and we're thinking so much and going back and forth. And what's funny to me is when we do the analysis by paralysis, part of the reason we do it is because we actually haven't identified the specific fears out of making the wrong decision. Now, if you're an executive right? Here's, what, here's some sample fears you have if you make the wrong decision. Like I mentioned on the show, time, time invested in hiring this person and onboarding them and bring them onto the company and teaching and training and coaching. Two, money. The money you spent and the results you get for that money. Three, and this is the big one. You would think bigger than time and money? Well, maybe not bigger, but certainly as important. And that's reputation. And let me explain to you what I mean. I don't care what you have done over the course of your career to become an executive, you're still human. You still feel people around you and your emotions. I always chuckle. People who know me know I'm a big sports fan, and I always say that people, when athletes act a certain way or become disappointed, that people will say, those guys get paid millions of dollars. They shouldn't be acting like that. So I, I say to them, oh, so I understand. So, if people make a certain amount of money, they become void of emotion. I'm, I'm confused. Like, I don't see how that correlates. But we often forget people who become very successful leaders and at high level positions, we forget they have emotions and feelings and insecurities as well. And so their reputation means a lot to them. We don't know how confident they are on every situation, executives, because they have to put up a front. They can't show a lack of confidence. It's one of the first things you see about executive presence. You know, don't let them see that you're not confident. Fake it till you make it, they say, right? So what does this all mean? Well, what it means is I think one of the worst things an executive can worry about is if they have made a poor decision in the past. And they feel like if they make that poor decision again, they're worried about the coffee talk or the water cooler talk. Oh, there's that executive, another bad hire at COO, or another bad hire for the leadership team. And, you know, I've mentioned this on the show before. What are the three things that make up a person's confidence? Well, it's how you see yourself, how others see you, and what we're talking about right now is how you think others see you. And that lack of clarity and that ambiguity about how we Assume and imagine people perceive us can be devastating to our confidence and mindset. Because if we're so worried that people are questioning our credibility, our confidence, our ability to make impactful decisions, for all we know, they're not thinking that at all. For all we know, they are evaluating the greater norm versus the exceptions. And they are looking at the breadth of decisions the executive has made. And they're not perseverating on one bad decision. Or maybe they recognize the bad decision, but they have empathy and understand the conditions that involved or surrounded that decision. But time, money, and reputation are all parts of the fears around making that wrong decision. Now, how do you know you're making the right decision? Well, This is what I think are some criteria that tell me when I'm making a good decision. I'm nervous. I'm nervous, not excessively nervous, not the kind of nervousness that's creating a lot of anxiety, but I'm nervous. I I should have some reservations because I can't predict the future. And I, I won't have total control over the success of the decision. So yeah, I want you to be a little nervous, but not to the point of anxiety. I want you to question yourself. I want you to have a due diligence process that when you are possibly overanalyzing the decision and when you are getting to the point where you're struggling to make a final decision, you say to yourself, all right, I have the self-awareness. I'm overthinking this. I don't want to keep overthinking it. What are my primary criteria that are basing this decision on? Emotions aside, what is going to make this a good decision? That's what you have to do. You know, mindfulness is about having the awareness that you're having a feeling or an emotion, and then after you have the awareness, you act on it and have a process, a template, so you can get past it. Third thing is you can feel your confidence grow. I can tell you from personal experience, when I look at the amount of decisions I have made in my life, sure, I've made a lot of bad decisions, just like everybody else, but what I can tell you is when I think of major decisions and when I say major decisions to take a stand, to progress forward, I literally feel like I'm at no less than 90%. How do I know? Because when I look at the five to 10 major decisions in my life, not one of them have I second guessed and said, geez, I don't know if I should have done that. And maybe I got lucky. Maybe it just worked out that way. Or maybe I had good Instincts and insight and processes around making that decision, but I think questioning yourself in 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 knowing how to be confident is really important.
2: I just want to say one thing. So you said uh, "fake it till you make it" as like the beginning of this whole thing, and I just want to say what you said kind of resonates in terms of instead of fake it, face it. Mm. Um, there's been. I don't know I saw a meme or something on Facebook that's face it till you make it because at the end of the day if you're not facing those problems if you're not owning up to the things that you might have done wrong or you know the things that you want to change how are you ever going to get to the spot where you want to be how are you ever going to know if those decisions are actually good decisions or not if you're not facing those consequences.
1: Jasmine, I'm, I'm, you know, Jasmine and I know each other casually. We, we haven't, you know, we work worked together at the radio show that, that is nothing short of profound to me. I mean, that is one of the most valuable things that's ever been said on this show. And
2: yeah, like I said, it was just a random thing that I came across. And when you said that, it brought it right back into my mind. And I was like, you know what? I think he needs to hear this.
1: Yeah. It's tremendous. And it's, it's so powerful. Like, you know what? You know, what's funny, Jasmine. I think of the word empower in the workplace, right? So often leaders are taught, you need to empower your team. We don't put as much emphasis on empowering yourself, right? And when you talk about face it until you make it, I mean, it sent chills down my spine when you said, I was like, wow, face it until you make it. And you know what's funny? We also throw around with leadership words like authenticity and being genuine. And when you fake it until you make it, you can face it and still maintain your confidence. It implies that you have to not be authentic or genuine to show confidence.
2: Right, exactly. Right.
1: And what I try to do on this show a lot is when I tell personal stories of mistakes I've made or failures I've encountered or negative experience I've had, it's purposeful. It's intentional because I want people to know that I think part of being a successful leader and communicator is being vulnerable. In facing these things and owning them and being accountable.
2: Well, and being congruent with it so that when you're actually talking to that person, your, you know, wants and needs on the inside match the what you're expressing on the outside. Yeah.
1: It, yes. And, and the other piece we talked about earlier in the show is that the time you invest with your inner voice, beating yourself up, harping on the mistakes, making things black and white, as opposed to facing it, which is, wait a minute, let me use a growth mindset, let me understand what did I miss, what did I ignore, so I can face it and I can deal with it and I can be better.
2: Well, and how do I put the pieces together better so that I can get a more clear picture of what I've been doing and how to move forward in the direction that I actually want to go?
1: Well, and I think that's a good point too, Jasmine, because when you say, how do I put the pieces together, we often forget there are a lot of pieces. Like, you know, it's just not one component. So I like that. How do I put the pieces together? Jasmine, coming up big today. Got to love it.
2: Oh, I try. I try. Nice
1: job. So, look, one of the things I talk about it uh, with, with clients, with leadership and even sales and communication is there's a difference between knowing and doing. Okay? So when you're listening to this show today, I imagine when I train people, coach people, Talk about decision making. A lot of you listen, and you're like, right, yeah, that's right. Again, like I said earlier in the show, how do you convert knowing something, having the knowledge to do something the right way to executing it and doing it? How do you build the confidence to take that step, to have the self-awareness, to do the debrief and autopsy, to reflect, to put time aside for thinking and critical critical thinking and problem solving? This is what we're talking about. This is what we teach. How to build the habits, how to sustain the habits. So that's it for this episode of i Communicate on what could go wrong in making the right decisions. I am Mark Altman, president of Mindset Go and host of i Communicate. Jasmine, thank you again for everything, and we'll see you next time.
0: Listening to I Communicate with your host Mark Altman. Join us again each week at this time on Full Service Radio, WCRN.